Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our roundup of posts from January from the blog site. And we've got a couple of cracking evidence-based posts to bring to you in a moment. But first, Simon, we should talk about the news of the day, really. And that is the launching of St. Emlyn's Wild. This new conference idea that we've dreamt up as a team, but I have to say you are at the heart of organising in the Lake District, June this year. It's outdoors, it's education, it's team building, it's leadership, it's all the stuff we bang on about. Tell us some more. Yes, we're really excited about this. And it's something we have been trying to get going for for years, but COVID got in the way. It's, It's about our beliefs, really. What do we do at St. Emelins? We want to be really clinically excellent. So we've got a bunch of workshops running up there about clinical excellence, about going beyond ALS, ATLS, and really the pragmatic bits of how you do excellence in high-level clinical care around emergency medicine, pre-hospital care, etc. And we've also got a lot around leadership because we genuinely believe that working in teams and working functionally as both followership, leadership, and all of those aspects is really important to what we do. And we can only really teach that and learn it and share about it if we put people in potentially quite challenging situations. And so we've got the environment to do that. And we've also believed that actually just being together is a great way for us all to develop as clinicians and just to feel better about what we do. So two days and one day's in camp. We'll do lots of workshops in camp. We'll have some really challenging scenarios there as well put people through their paces, working in teams, working, getting to know each other really well over the two days. And then the second day, we'll be out through the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the water around Coniston, putting people through a series of leadership challenges and also clinical challenges. And we'll give people feedback on how their performance is so we can develop their leadership skills, which I know is really important to people who are on um, training programs. So it meets a lot of the curriculum requirements for things like anaesthetics, emergency medicine, paramedicine, etc. It's going to be a lot of fun and we get a lot out of this. So to confirm, you'd arrive in Coniston on the Friday evening and there's a bit of a chilled vibe, I think is what the young people call it on the Friday. Staying in tents, if you so choose, on the campsite that we've got on the site for the conference. But there's lots of accommodation around the area, too. And then the main conference starts on Saturday. But we would love you to join us on Friday. And so Saturday and Sunday, you alternate two days. One day you'll be in the hills, as Simon says, and one day you'll be in camp. It'll be half the group doing one and half the group doing the other. And then we'll come together in the evening on Saturday for a combined social event. Simon, it's important to say this isn't just for the people attending conferences, is it? Because summer weekends are precious. And we don't want to take you away from your families. In fact, we'd love you to bring your families with you. Yeah, so there'll be quite a lot of stuff around there. Of course, you know, the Lake District itself is a wonderful playground for adults and children alike. Lots of opportunities and lots of things that people can organise for themselves. For younger children, we're hoping to have an on-site unit which will actually do children's activities on site. I think that's pretty much sorted now and it will happen. And of course, you know, if you're bringing your partners along, share the experience with them. If you'll be able to meet up with them in the evening in the same event, the same place, and just generally have a great time. It's a great place to be. If you've never been to the Lake District, it's absolutely beautiful. And Coniston is one of the real jewels of the Lake District itself. And all food and drink will be included. Well, not all of your drinks, but normal drinks. Uh, But luckily, there is a bar on site for those of you who enjoy a soft drink or perhaps even an alcoholic beverage of an evening. So there's everything there on site for you to enjoy. And we'd love you to join us. 
We're putting all the details onto the website as we get them. So please do check back. Check onto your social media sites if you follow St. Emlyn's or myself or Simon or many other people. Hopefully you'll be seeing lots about this into your feeds over the next few weeks. And hopefully we can persuade you that this is somewhere you'd like to spend your very precious study leave funding and your very precious free time. So have a look, have a think about it and come and join us for what I think will be a really special weekend that hopefully... We all need a bit of rejuvenation, don't we? And this could be just the ticket. If you're just wondering about your career or just want to do something a bit different, this could really be it. The other thing is worth mentioning is uh, try and get your tickets early. Um, we're pretty limited on spaces on this uh, conference. There is no room for expansion because of the, the intense requirements around faculty, particularly for the Hills Day. So if you want to come, I'd get your tickets fairly early. And if you want accommodation which isn't on site, again, book early because it's a really popular part of the world and things like Airbnbs and stuff will get snapped up pretty quick if unless you're careful. And don't worry if you're not the outdoorsy type. Anyone who's met me will realise that I do earn, own a pair of walking boots, but they're, they're still quite pristine and they could do with a bit of use. So please don't think this is only for the hardened outdoors person. If you're just reasonably fit, or even not that, thank heavens, you'll be more than welcome and you'll be more than capable to do the activities we've got. And we've got professional instructors to take you around the hills day and guide you so it's entirely safe and done in an entirely healthy and supportive environment let's 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 see as many people as we can from podcast up in constant it'd be great so simon let's move on and talk about a little bit of evidence-based medicine we've got a couple of posts from the blog site this month it's a bit light after christmas but also we are a bit distracted by organizing this conference but we'll hopefully still be bringing you the high quality content that you're used to and let's talk about these two topics both of which are close to the hearts of all of us i think The first is a journal club post from Stefan, and the title is probably a bit more complicated than the subject itself. Is persistent functional deficit following mild traumatic brain injury more common than we thought? And this paper really means what's concussion and how many people get it? Yes, depending on, I suppose, depending on what your precise definition of concussion is. But for me, it is that group of patients who don't necessarily resolve from their head injury. When he says, is it more common than we thought? I think a lot of us know that people who turn up in the emergency department who have had a head injury and maybe aren't that, you know, they're not being admitted onto incentive care and they've had a good old knock on the head. We know that they don't get better, all of them. But this study helps us understand just what that sort of impact is. So what they did, and it's a US study, is they went over and they looked at patients in a database where they're collecting lots of information about patients. And this is patients who presented to the ED they're age over 17, they've had head trauma within 24 hours injury, and with a GCS of 15 and a normal brain scan. So with that groupie, and I think that's the group that I would go, you're fine, to a degree, off you go, you're just going to get better. Because that, that sounds like actually quite a mild group of patients, would you agree? Oh, but don't forget, given the obligatory head injury advice sheet. Oh, yes. So yes, they just get sent home with a head injury advice sheet that basically says, please come back if something really bad happens. But we're not great at advising them about the symptoms they may get going forward, which are kind of normal, but they can do some stuff about. Within this group, they looked at maybe a little bit of a subgroup of the patients who had had any period of loss of consciousness, any loss of memory pre or post, any mental state alteration or any focal neurological deficits either before or even if they were transient, they got included. To some extent, this is in the UK. It's very close to what the NICE guidelines would say, the indications for you having a a CT anyway. But the CT was normal. I would perhaps expect the majority of these patients to get better. So what they did then is they followed them up. They looked at two particular time points at two weeks and at six months. And they used the Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended, which is a way of measuring how people are functioning. And that is an eight point scale. 
But eight is an up a good recovery, I basically return to normal life. Something like a seven is return to normal life, but with some symptoms. And they followed these patients up over those periods of time and, and think what happened. So, Ian, I know you've read the paper, but before you read this paper, if I told you that at two weeks, only 27% of people were back at their functional baseline, would you have been surprised? Yes and no. I've been more and more aware of concussion as my career has gone on. And also more aware, I live in a, a, the region where uh, a professional hockey player, Alex Danson, uh, lives. And in fact, I bought my Christmas tree off her, but that's another story. Uh, she was a professional GB hockey player. She had a mild head injury and then had to retire from the sport because of concussion. And that led to look a bit more into it. But I do think this is a subject that is badly managed from the perspective of telling patients what to expect. They want to know how long it will take and they're surprised that it's not better tomorrow I think and it's even more interesting when you look at the sort of six month data because I, I, I guess I'm a bit like you I, I've got an awareness of this and I've had a, an excellent trainee who's um, taught me a lot who works in sports medicine who's taught me a lot about concussion I was surprised that at six months 44 percent of patients only 44 percent of patients had fully recovered so over half of them were still struggling at six months I think that probably is more than I thought and that's probably just my ignorance and but a much bigger impact than I thought and then you know from the paper's perspective this is an observational cohort study so it tells us a little bit about what go, what's going on it doesn't really have the methodology to tell us what to do about it and so looking at this study the what I've had in conversation and what has been suggested is that okay fair enough well all these patients need to be then go on for therapy and that's okay but then the question is what therapy and what therapy works for this group of patients and that's not tested in this study and you're right I think that's still a big area where we don't know what to do really do we I think if you're a professional sports person then you obviously get some degree of support because they want to get you back to play particularly if that's in a contact sport but for our patients who pops into the department having bumped his head, that where do we turn? And we, we don't have the resources, do we, in order to ask for all of them to see our head injury nurse specialist. And actually, in my place, a lot of them are seeing the patients with significant and life threatening and life. Well, these are life altering, too, but life altering brain injury. So we're a bit stuck as to what to do, but at least we can know it's a problem. And we could let our patients know, too, that they won't get better straight away and never forget the old fit note. Let the patient think about whether they will be able to work. And if they're not, it's probably likely and support them by giving them that fit note from the emergency department. Let's not burden our general practice colleagues with having to fill out bits of paper that we can do ourselves. I think it is going to change my practice this one. I'm going to be a little bit less confident in talking to people about their recovery times and be better again at signposting some of these people and perhaps engage a little bit more in our follow-up head injury clinics, which are unfortunately a bit stretched at the moment. And to point you in the direction, Headway is the Brain Injury Association who've got an excellent website. It covers not just concussion, but all the way down to uh, severe life-altering uh, brain injury. And that's worth a look. And you can always find decent advice sheets to give patients about concussion that go beyond. If you have a fit, come back to us. Simon, there's one other post to talk about from this month. Again, an evidence-based topic. And this was written by you. Now, this is sort of the other end of the scale, isn't it? The use of extracorporeal... The use of extracorporeal... Let's try one more time. The use of extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation as the next step in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that's resistant to other treatments. We've talked a lot about this. This is the kind of whizzy end of emergency medicine that I think excites many. Is this something we should be looking at? Well, there's been some really interesting studies out there which have suggested that we probably should. So the big one that everyone will talk about is the ARREST trial, which was published um, a few years ago in The Lancet. And they show that if you were quite very selective about the patients that you put on CCPR, 
the difference was dramatic. So they had a 43% success rate with eCPR versus 7% for standard therapies. It's only a phase two trial, sort of proof of concept in a very mature system, thing we'll come back to in a second, well-established eCPR protocols. And it was, you know, that's a remarkable difference. And you've really got to work on that and take that to the next stage and start doing randomized controlled trials with large populations to see if we can carry that very important, very interesting signal through. And that's where we are with this study. So this is a multi-center randomized controlled trial done in the Netherlands, looking at the use of eCPR for patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. There are a number of models about how this can work. I'm sure we've all seen the pictures of French team doing eCPR, putting people on ECMO on the floor or on a trolley in the Louvre in France. You know, it's a pre-hospital service. So they're going out to the patients at the time and doing it. This study doesn't do that. And in fact, the arrest study didn't either. Their model is that the patients are identified as potentially being suitable for ECMO and are then taken into hospital where the eCPR is started. So quite interesting from that point of view. So the patients that they're actually looking at, they were reasonably selective. So these are cardiac arrest patients. They had to be in what's known as refractory arrest, which in their definition was an arrest for more than 15 minutes, aged 17 to 70, which is a much broader age range than many other sort of ECMO or eCPR services, which often sort of top out at 50, 55. They had to have no major obvious pre-existing conditions like heart failure, cancer, etc. So it's quite a broad group of patients that they put through. And if that group, they were identified, they were taken to their, one of their local ECMO centres. And I think there were 10 or 11 in this study where they instituted eCPR on arrival. And then they followed those patients through with a major outcome point at 30 days, looking at neurological outcome at that point. So great to see this trial. I mean, it's in the New England Journal of Medicine, but it does highlight how hard this is because there's relatively small numbers of patients involved. Yeah, so they enrolled 160 patients in the trial, but with exclusions for various different reasons, fell to 70 in the eCPR group and 64 in the conventional group. But then it's the practicalities and the pragmatism around eCPR. And this is one of the criticisms that this trial has had. It's quite difficult to do eCPR unless you're you're actually um, very well versed in it and very well practiced and skilled in it. And a lot of these centres were in setup whilst the trial was actually taking place. So they weren't the kind of mature centre that the arrest trial had looked at. So if you look at some of the detail, that cannulation, they only achieved that in 46 of the patients randomised to the eCPR group, so 70 patients. So not that many of them actually got cannulation. It took about 20 minutes to do once they'd arrived at the hospital. I'm not sure that this is the most functional system for really testing whether the eCPR works or whether it's looking at the system. In terms of the big outcomes, at the end of the trial, 14 of the 70 randomised the eCPR group had a favourable outcome as compared to 10 of the 62 in the conventional group. So that's a 20% versus a 16% difference, which with these small numbers wasn't statistically significant. Having said that, the precision of that results like really broad. The confidence intervals are huge. Similar at six months and three months, no real difference there either. It's an interesting trial. It's a very interesting area. The elements in it that worry me are, you know, was this the right patient group that we were looking at? Was the system really mature enough to be doing this efficiently and quickly? Because the the time to cannulation, the time to get on pump were really quite long, a lot longer than other centres. And therefore, does it really tell us it doesn't work or does it tell us that this system doesn't work? And I think it's probably the latter. Again, yeah, the the average time to getting onto eCPR was 74 minutes. Now that in our system, when we were trialling ECMO for pre-hospital cardiac arrests in um, in Verchester, so to speak, if they didn't get to the point where they were going on the pump at 60 minutes, they were excluded. So their average time was longer than we would have accepted as a, as a start time. Lots and lots of questions. Doesn't answer it. Like to see some more data, please.
comes to the point, wouldn't it, doesn't it, where we, we'd love to be able to heal everything and cure everything. And there's some stuff that no matter what we throw at it, we just can't do anything to help. But it's good that this thing's being pushed. It's good that it's going into high impact journals. And it's always great to see emergency medicine in those journals because it will just increase the number of other stuff that then gets in there following it. Yeah, and the other thing that's worth mentioning is something Cliff Reed said to me years ago is that when somebody has a cardiac arrest and you do ALS, a lot of the ALS is actually involved in just keeping them alive long enough that you can actually deal with the problem about why they went into cardiac arrest in the first place. So, you know, getting them to PCI to have their clot removed or their coronary artery sorted out. ECPR is essentially just another technique to allow you to do that, but for a longer period of time. And I think if we conceptually think about it like that, it probably does have a place for a, for a group of patients um, and it probably would help a group of patients. We just need to identify the right group and make sure that we've got the teams, the equipment and the systems available that can actually make it work. But yes, I want to see more data. It's like a lot of the things we do, isn't it? It's a bridging therapy till you can get definitive management. And more and more, I see cardiac arrest as two different diseases. You've got the acute tachyarrhythmia, the VFs and VTs, where we can treat, we can actually cardiovert and get the patient out of that and into a normal sinus rhythm. And yes, maybe something caused it that they need further treatment for. So we can actually treat that one. But the other ones where they're in the so-called PEA, which is really profoundly low blood pressure, what we're trying to do is just keep their body going long enough to fix the problem that caused it. And that's where some of these therapies are useful as bridging to definitive treatment. But they are different. And for all of having two limbs on an algorithm, it's more complex for that for me than that. Or in fact, more simple. They're two different diseases. I'd agree. I'd agree. And I think we need to think about it in those terms. So just a couple of posts from this month. But uh, Simon, it does give us a few minutes to just have a chat about how you're getting on with being Dean of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. This is quite a thing, isn't it? I get to monthly chat with the Dean. And we did mention what that job involves. You've been in it for four weeks or so now. So plenty of time to revolutionise everything in assessment and career pathways and everything else. But uh, how is it going? It's actually an incredible privilege to, to do this job. It's the one job at the college I've always wanted to do. Um, I never wanted to be president or anything like that. But the dean's job is the one which I think is so important because it's about the trainees. It's about how we build the next population of emergency clinicians now because we're quite a broad church um, in the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. I'm really excited to do whatever I can to make that journey sensible, to make it safe, to make it pragmatic and to make it possible for as many people as possible. I'm available on Twitter. My email is dean at rchem.ac.uk. Quite happy to hear whatever, from whoever, whenever, however. And of course, you'd be happy to have your ear bent over a glass of orange juice in the Lake District in June. I'm sure that would be the perfect opportunity to nobble the dean. In fact, we should probably have a session entitled Nobble the Dean. I think it could be uh, very popular. Simon, it's lovely to chat as always. We'll have more information about St. Emily's Wild over the next few weeks. Please watch out for that. Keep smiling, keep enjoying your emergency medicine and make sure you take care of yourselves. Thank you.